0: So take your Bibles, if you will, as you can see on the screen, Emmanuel, God with us, and go to Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Matthew chapter 1, I want to tell you good morning again. And uh, there in your copy of the Word of God, we're going we're gonna to read Matthew's version of the birth of Jesus Christ, some specifics about that. And uh, I thought it was, um, I looked, and, and you know, we're, well, let me just, let me just get into the, into the text here this morning. But look at Matthew chapter 1. Um, we're going to begin reading there at verse number 18, and if you don't mind, and if you're able, please stand in honor of the Word of God to show the Word of God reverence this morning. Verse 18 tells us, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Verse 19 says, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to put uh, to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins." till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for who you are. Thank you, Jesus, Lord, for becoming one of us. Thank you for taking on our sin and, and, and taking on all those things that accompany our salvation, Lord. We just praise you this morning. We're so very thankful for the day that we call Christmas, Lord. And we're thankful for all the things uh, that you do in our lives. Lord, thank you for intervening. Uh, in our in our depraved state, Lord. And we love you. We thank you for that, Lord. We ask that you meet with us in a very special way. Meet with Lisa across the way, Lord, as she teaches those children as well. Meet with those those little, uh, their, their hearts, Lord, and meet with our hearts this morning, Lord. Help us to all, Lord, just focus on you this morning. Let's take all the things in the world and just throw them, throw them out the window for a moment, so to speak, Lord, and just lift up your name this morning, Lord. Help us to get a hold of uh, of the worship of you and your son, just uh, Jesus Christ, this morning. We thank you again, and we love you. In his name do we pray amen amen please please be seated so here in this passage here there are of course um, there are of course many truths that we're not going to we won 't capitalize on all of them this morning, but there are a handful of truths that I want to talk about uh, and there if there is one title from the text um, there's probably many, but if there's one title that uh, from within that text that could convey the truth of this morning 's message it it would be God with us right there in um, whatever verse that is twenty two I think it is um, 2023, 20, God with us. So this is going to be our title this morning, God with us. Now, we're going we're to attempt this morning with a valiant effort, I am, uh, to rightfully divide this passage this morning. And there's many ways to divide it, of course. But we're going to divide it to make an application for us this Christmas. And, but we must do so not forgetting that truth that it's all about God with us. Don't forget that. God with us. This is truly the essence of Christmas, God with man. And as we draw nearer to the very day, not the exact day that he was born, but to the very day that we celebrate the birth of Christ, as I was putting this together, I was reminded that we've been, Christians have been celebrating for this for a long time. For 2,000 years, right? So for a very long time, and much has changed in the world during this 2,000 years, just in the lifetime of the country of of the United States. I mean, just the 200-plus years there, all the wars, the ups and downs, and all those things, many things have changed. Many sermons have been preached from this passage. And personally, as I was, again, putting this together, I looking at this pulpit and looking at what comes from this pulpit, I purposely limit topical sermons. I purposely limit specific sermons that are expected because of a certain season, whether it's Easter or, or, or Christmas or whatever, whatever it may be. But at the same time, I do see the value of those sermons because many people, some people might be more inclined to come to church and hear a message geared for Easter or Christmas or, or something along those lines. Uh, and with that said, if you think about that 2,000 years again, there have been numerous, no doubt, countless millions of sermons about the birth of Christ. And preachers today may be tempted to preach something new or different. My wife was sharing a couple years ago how some preachers get up and they talk about what the donkey might have thought there, there at, the, uh, at the manger scene. So we want to make it interesting. So we may be tempted to preach something new or different about this day. And to be honest, I think all of us from time to time, may come to church hoping to hear something new. Maybe you want to hear a different perspective. We want to, we want to be blessed from the text, uh, whether it's Christmas or not. We want to have something special delivered to us collectively as a church or maybe even individually. But to be up front with you this morning, I am not going to preach anything newer than a 2,000-year-old message this morning. It's the same message. And the same is true, really, of every Bible-believing church. Every Sunday morning here at Home Foods Baptist Church, nothing is new being preached here. It might be new to us, but it's the same message. And while this message is relatively old, it is not outdated. It is as powerful today as it was when it was first written, as it was first spoken and when it was first lived out. And this is the message of Jesus Christ. This is the message of Jesus. This is why we're here And here in Matthew chapter 18, verses uh, down, or chapter 1 rather, down to 18 to 25, we have in our copy of the Word of God, really eight verses uh, that record a single event that changed the world. I mean, it really changed the world. And while many things have again changed since that event, nations have fallen, nations have been formed, wars have decimated this planet. Man has searched the depths of the ocean. We've put men on the moon. Millions of books have been written and even rewritten and changed about the knowledge that we have gained. But this message, the story of God becoming man, has not changed one bit. It's the same message. You see, religions have challenged its truth, yes. Evolutionary scientists believe that they have disproven it. Lettered historians criticize the authenticity of it. But the message. Is still here and it's still the same. And what is that message? Look at verse 23 Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. You know, friends, just about every religion in the world talks about how man can achieve a certain status via his good works, how man can become a God or like God, but not this message. This is the message of God becoming man. It's the complete reversal of anything that we could concoct. This is God looking down on humanity in our rebellious and depraved state, in our delusional concept of self-righteousness, and God saying, I love them anyway. I love them anyway. So much so that I'm going to send forth my son, Jesus Christ, so that they can be redeemed. What's the most popular verse? No doubt, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loved us, so he gave Jesus to us. You see, you see, in summary of all this together, God created this world and everything in it without sin, without sin. And it was in perfect harmony, harmony with himself. But you and I have rebelled. Man rebelled, and through that brought death, disease, and destruction into an otherwise sinless creation. But God then chose to still intervene. I mean, what a God do we have? What is man that thou art mindful of him? God decided to intervene with his creation in order to draw us back to him. He taught man the price of sin through sacrifice. He taught man the incredible importance of faith. He even called a nation unto himself prior to the book of Matthew here to be a light to the world for the purpose, for the very purpose of redemption. And even though there were great men used by God from that nation, and many miracles through those men, all all the prophets, all the way in, in the inclusion, all of the Old Testament, they never could accomplish what God truly wanted to be accomplished. It was written on the wall, so to speak, from the very beginning, that God was going to have to get personally involved if there was ever going to be any true redemption. It couldn't be done through the prophets. It couldn't be done just through their sacrifice. Something more had to happen. Something more God would have to be personally involved. Again, there was a mark on the wall known only by God, and that mark was to send his son Jesus Christ into this world. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 states that when the fullness of time was come, that mark on the wall, God sent forth his son made of a woman to redeem us. And these, here, these eight verses here in Matthew chapter 1, I believe, capture this event with an iron pen for all of us to see, read, and believe. And in the exposition of this passage, which really is inexhaustible, I think it can be, be divided in a couple different ways. And one of the ways where it can be divided is in perspectives. In the perspectives of past, in the perspectives of present, and in the future perspective. So, past present, and future. In other words, these verses here, these eight verses, look back to the teaching of prophecy. They look at the fulfillment of those prophecies, and they look forward to the future unfolding of prophecy right there in these handful of verses. So, in short, we have, we have a promise, we have a promise fulfilled, and we have a new promise. And looking at it, at this simplistic view, you know, when someone keeps a promise and they keep another promise, and they keep another promise, you're inclined to believe them when they tell you something else because they're, they have a good record. God, therefore, has great credibility. No surprise. He has a perfect record of being true to his word. You know, when I, was, <clears throat> when I was much younger and more foolish, I went to a dealership one time, and my wife, I'm sure, remembers this, and I went there to buy a new-to-me car. And, um, and I asked the dealer that, can I, can I buy a new-to-me car? And after looking at my credit report, he smiled a little bit. He's like, no problem. You put down 75% of the purchase price, and we will finance the other 25%. Needless to say, I did not have a a good credit uh, record with him at that time. And by the way, when it comes to what really matters before God, none of us have a good record, a good record in our efforts before God. God, however, does. He has a perfect record. He never sins. He never falters. He never fails. What he says comes to fruition. He has a perfect record. And the three promises, the three truths uh, that are found in this past, present, and future perspective that Matthew focuses on here, I believe, are of great importance. Look at verses 22 and 23 again. Matthew writes, Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So God promised through the prophets that a virgin shall conceive and bring God among man, bring God among man. The Holy Spirit through Matthew truly emphasized the fact that this is God keeping his promise. The prophet said this, God said this through the prophet, rather, and this is coming to pass. So Matthew here in this context of past, this perspective, rather, Matthew is then reaching back to a former promise or past promises and connecting them to a fulfillment. So if you're going to take notes this morning, we're just going to call that a former promise. The passage that he quotes about that former promise is right out of Isaiah 7, verse 14 which says, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. As stated, Emmanuel means God with us, or actually with us is God. Uh, And regardless of how we interpret that word used for virgin, which we'll come back to, the fulfillment of that promise by Isaiah and here quoted by Matthew is still God among man. It's God among man. Verse 22 in Matthew 1 begins by stating that all this was done, that it might be fulfilled. So all this was done. What is this, all this? In reverse, right before that verse there, what is all this, what Matthew is writing about, in reverse, we see that it no doubt includes the birth of Christ. It includes the Holy Ghost conception of Christ. And because Matthew lists the genealogies all the way back to Abraham, it no doubt includes the promise of Christ to every single one of those patriarchs. So therefore, I don't think it's a stretch to say that all this, in that phrase, all this was done, includes all that Matthew has written up until this point. Remember, this is the gospel according to Matthew, were early in the gospel. So it includes all that Matthew recorded up until this point, beginning with Abraham. Look at verse 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, all this was done so these things can happen. You know, we know from the writings of the apostles Peter and John and, and probably a handful of others that the promise of Jesus was before the foundation of the world, not just with Abraham. But Matthew, here not surprisingly, what does he tie the promise to? He ties it to Abraham. He ties it to the man who is venerated among Israel. He ties it to the beginning of Israel. And remember, again, Matthew is the gospel record to the Jews, among whom Abraham and David, for that matter, are highly venerated. So connecting Jesus to them, Connecting Jesus to Abraham and David was very, very important and very, very essential for Matthew in his, in his efforts here. And for our frame of reference this morning as Christians, we can see here that Matthew just connected Jesus to the early parts, parts of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 11, actually. For us, for you and me, this truly validates the early chapters of Genesis. But that's a byproduct, really, because for Matthew, for the Jew, it validated the birth of Christ because Genesis was already accepted as the word of God, and Matthew disconnected Jesus all the way back to Genesis chapter 11. In other words, the flood, the call of Abram, the Abrahamic covenant, the trial of Abraham with Isaac, the call of Isaac, the covenant with Isaac, the call of Jacob, the covenant with Jacob, from his son Judah to David the king, and from Solomon all the way to Joseph, every intervention, every promise, every promise fulfilled, every miracle, all of it was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bring forth a son. You see all of God's actions among men were all designed to bring Jesus into this world. They were all designed to bring Jesus to us, to bring Jesus to you. Even earlier than Genesis 11, we read God's pronouncement upon Satan for his deception of Eve. Genesis 3:14 says that the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, and then in verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it, her seed, shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. A clear prophecy that in the fullness of time, a seed of a woman will bruise or crush the head of the serpent who represents the devil. As mentioned earlier, Galatians tells us that when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of who? made of a woman, to redeem them. So from the very beginning, God has kept his promises. He is trustworthy. You can count on God. You can count on God's word. He will not let you down. It will always come to pass. What's written is true. In a sense, the birth of Jesus Christ validates God's perfect record. In the counting of generations there by Matthew in verse 17, we see that God has kept promise after promise after promise for more than 40 generations. Forty-two to be exact, recorded by Matthew. And all of those promises, again, are for a purpose. They lead us to the greatest promise. They lead us to the greatest fulfillment of any prophecy, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So in the progression of our sermon this morning with Matthew, we're moving from that former promise that past promise to a fulfilled promise this morning in in the then present a fulfilled present <clears throat> look again we re- we read again that it's that the bible says all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the lord by the prophets saying behold a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son so from a human perspective it's it's and I'm not trying to be irreverent here, but it's almost like God's credibility is on the line. So somewhere within the confines of a timeline created for man, Emmanuel had to become a reality. Emmanuel had to become a reality. God had to be among men for these words to be uh, true. From Genesis 3.15 and on, Every prophecy, every promise that pointed to God being among us had to be fulfilled. And truthfully, and from God's perspective, which is the better perspective, the best perspective, there is no way that it could not be fulfilled because it's God and He's creditworthy. Again, this is God we're speaking of. Titus 1-2 tells us that God cannot lie. And that same God inspired Isaiah to write in chapter 9, verse 6, in chapter 9, verse 6 of the book, bearing his name, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. I always pause there. I like the way that it says a child is born, a new child, a new, new flesh and bone, if you will. But a son was given. That son preexisted. A gift preexist, And the giver, the son was given to be a child who was born. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Friends, that's some strong, bold words from Isaiah, that this child will be the everlasting Father, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace. Those are some bold words with strong implications. There's no getting out of that. A child will be born and a son will be given. But you know, of all the verses available to Matthew, that and a handful more, about the birth of Christ, he chose Isaiah 7.14. I mean, think about that for a moment. He could have he chose any other passage to quote, but he chose Isaiah seven fourteen, the very first book in our Bible, of course, not the first New Testament book written, but the first one to the Jews, and he chose this, book, this passage. He chose to quote, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, resulting in God being with us. Now, again, think about that for a moment. Think about Matthew writing that passage. He no doubt knew there would be some pushback on this. A virgin shall conceive. He knew there would be some scoffers. And he probably knew that even today there would be some, difficult, some difficulty in believing that for some people. But he wrote it anyway. He chose that passage. Why did he write it? Well, first, because it's the truth. And second, because it's the passage that God told him to write. But again, look at that passage. A virgin is going to be with child and give birth to a son. If there was ever a place or a time to whitewash that prophecy, it could be now. If, if Matthew wanted to water it down, he could not mention it at all and say, let's, let's, let's just move away from that virgin birth. It's, that's that's kind of much. I mean, I know, God, you said that, but that's kind of much. And, but he don't move away from it at all. He owns it. Again, there are a handful of other verses he could have chosen, but he didn't. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth the Son. And I submit to you this morning that this is one of the pillars of Christian doctrine, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. One commentator of yesteryear concluded that he believed one could not call himself a Christian if he rejects the virgin birth. And some preachers even today, some well-known preachers even today, surprisingly so, kind of lessen the emphasis of it. Oh, you can just believe in the resurrection. Don't worry about the virgin birth. But what does the text say? A virgin shall be with child. Notice again verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus was on this wise when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, notice the rest of that verse, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And just in case there was any other misunderstanding, Matthew finishes this thought in verse 25, which states that Joseph knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. Furthermore, I want to tell you this morning that some have attacked this word that Isaiah used for virgin there in Isaiah 7.14. They say it describes just a young unmarried woman, and it shouldn't be translated as virgin. They say he could have used the Hebrew word that more specifically focused on what there is for virgin, the stronger Hebrew word, but he didn't. This, however, in my opinion, is weak semantics, and Matthew really clarifies Isaiah's usage Perfectly. You see, Matthew did use a strong Greek word for the word virgin, rightly translated in our Bibles, and he even qualifies his use. He didn't even let it stand. He talked about it a little bit. He interacted with the thought that a virgin will conceive. Look at the phrases uh, just in this short passage. Verse 18, again, before they came together, then we see she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. At the end of verse 19, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Verse 23, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. And again, verse 25, he knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son. What else could Matthew be trying to convey here? And in what other way could he convey it, that Jesus was born of a virgin and conceived of the Holy Ghost? You see, these these are some significant truths at hand. They're very, very important. And they might be more important... Than what first seems, than what at first, then what meets the eye. God is keeping a promise. Number one. I mean, think about this: if Jesus was not conceived of the Holy Ghost, as Matthew has written, then this is not a fulfillment of Isaiah seven fourteen. Even though Matthew quotes it, and Matthew then is deemed quite dishonest in his portrayal of Jesus Christ, if it, it's not true that Jesus was born of a virgin. That's number one. Number two, if the Holy Ghost conception of Jesus is not a primary issue to salvation because belief in the resurrection is what provides salvation, which is the normal way it's presented today from those uh, different kinds of preachers, if that's true, why should we believe Matthew's account of the resurrection if we don't believe his account of Jesus' conception? In other words, this becomes a Bible authority issue, and you pick and choose what you want to believe from the text. Do we believe the Bible, or do we believe what our modern world has to say about the impossibilities of conception without a man? I mean, think about that for a moment. Our world can't even define what a man is or a woman is. Men in our world are lost, and they reject the basic knowledge of how men are to be men and women are to be women. Why would any Christian succumb the writings of God to the authority of man? It makes no sense. And number three, if Jesus was not conceived of the Holy Ghost, as Matthew has written, then as great as a man as he was, that is all he was, a man. Conceived the same way you and I were conceived. The fact of the matter is that God did keep his promise. Jesus was born of a virgin, which makes the resurrection possible, and he is indeed 100% God and 100% man. And while every New Testament writer doesn't specifically address Jesus' Holy Ghost conception, they all attest in one way or the other the deity of Jesus Christ, which requires a virgin birth. None of us have deity in us. None of us are deity. Well, we do have the Holy Spirit, of course, but we are not God that requires the virgin birth. So those are three things right there, why it has to be a virgin birth, but that's not all that is predicated upon the virgin birth and the deity of Jesus Christ. In our text this morning, we have looked at a former promise and a fulfilled promise. Now let's look at a forward-looking promise here in the text. Look at verse 21 again. It states that she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For what? Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. So get this now. Let's put all that together. If Jesus was not conceived of the Holy Ghost, then the Scriptures are wrong. Jesus was only a man which prohibits the resurrection, and we are dead in our sins. But friends, the Bible tells us differently, doesn't it? As Hebrews says, we are persuaded of better things than these because Jesus was indeed born of a virgin. He is all God and all man, and he has saved millions of people from their sins. This passage here obviously doesn't look to the manger. It doesn't look to Jesus' miracles. It looks to the cross. This passage, this promise is forward-looking to the cross, which is the whole point of God being among men. The cross is the whole point of God becoming man. Speaking of Jesus' work on the cross, Colossians 2.14 states that he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. This was his purpose. And this was his mission. Again, he came to save us from our sins. God did not send his son to die on an old rugged cross because he had nothing better to do. Jesus did not humble himself in the form of a servant to humanity because we were on his way to a greater cause. No, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. We are his cause. Right out of the text here in Matthew, the son of God became the son of man so that he could save man from their sins. Emmanuel became a reality so that we could be saved from our sins. The truth of God with us is because of our sin. The truth of God with us was because he wanted to go to the cross and endure that pain and that suffering for you and for me to have eternal life. God with us, bring us truly with us, forever, or with him forever. The Bible states in 1 Timothy 1:15 this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why there is Christmas. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's black and white. That's straight. That's simple. You know how I like the simple text. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. God with us to pay our sin debt. The question, however, for us this morning in this present-day in this present day promise is not whether God is with us or not, but is God in us? Is God in us? Notice, notice these verses up here from Colossians again. The Bible states that the mystery, which has been from ages and from generations, all those things that Matthew talked about, the generations there, now is made manifest to his saints to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is this mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Whom we preach, I like this last verse, warning how many men? Every man. And teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Jesus Christ. Every man, that's not, that's, that's everybody. That, every means every, <laughs> every man. So as we close this morning... I want to say, know that, know that Jesus Christ died for you. It's not just a celebration of a, of a, of a, born, of a baby being born in a manger. It's the Son of God laying in that manger. God sent His only begotten Son for us and He didn't stay there. He went to that cross. He paid your sin debt. Know that Jesus was born and that He died for you. The gift of His entire life His entire life from his conception to the cross and beyond the resurrection is the best gift you could ever receive. Hands down, no competition. To be saved from your sins is truly what it means to be saved. It's truly what it means to be born again. And all we must do is believe and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Remember Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And for those of us this morning who have already received that eternal forgiveness of sins, rest assured this morning again and forevermore in the truth that God keeps his promises. In 2 Peter 3, 9, just a few sentences before Peter put his inspired pen down forever, just a few verses from the end, he wrote that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. The Lord is not slack. He will keep them. And friends, all of these things and more are true because God made it a point to keep his promise that a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. I hope that God is with you and God is in you this Christmas season. And if he has, if he isn't, If you do not know him as your personal Savior, please don't hesitate at all. Reach out to Jesus. Call out to him in faith and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning.